If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 61? Isaiah 61. If you're not sure where Isaiah is, just open up to the middle of your Bible. You'll probably hit Psalms and you can head right. And Isaiah is one of the major prophets, meaning it's one of the larger prophets. So Isaiah chapter 61, and we'll be looking at the whole chapter. And I actually want us to start, sometimes we talk a little bit before we read the text, but I want us to start by reading Isaiah 61. Uh, Before we jump into it, though, just a few notes as we read it. Um, the, The tone and the structure of this chapter, if you've been with us, is parallel in many ways to the servant songs back in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53. Um, they're similar to the it's similar to the song in Isaiah 49. Actually, the the figure of the servant Messiah speaks in Isaiah 61 without any introduction, and he's talking in verses one through three. And his announcement in those verses is followed by a confirmation of his words that's found in verses four through nine. And then the whole chapter is capped off with a response of praise and thanks in verses 10 through 11. So uh, the servant speaks in verses one through three, there's a confirmation in four through nine, and then a response of praise and thanks in verses 10 through 11. So let's look at God's word in Isaiah 61. This is what it says. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations." This chapter is a clear and compelling revelation of of who the Messiah will be and of what he will do. 
For Isaiah's original audience, all of the work of the Messiah was a future hope. But for we who are in this era of of God's work of salvation, we know that the anointed servant speaking in these chapters is Jesus, who came some 2,000 years ago. And we know that because Jesus himself said that these words were about him. In the reading from Luke 4 that Jake read for us earlier, we see Jesus stand up in his hometown and read the words of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and then tell the astonished crowd that they are about him, that he is the Messiah. Can you imagine him standing and reading those words and saying, that's me? Interestingly, Jesus stops reading the passage from Isaiah's scroll in the middle of a sentence. He ends with those words at the beginning of verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he does not read the next phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God. Those reading Isaiah prior to Jesus' coming would have assumed that the, the year of the Lord's favor and the day of wrath, that they arrived at the exact same time. But Jesus shows us that there's this space in between. The ministry of Christ's first coming was in so many ways, and it was and in so many ways continues to be an announcement of God's favor. Speaking about his first advent, his first coming, we read this in John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order, in order that the world might be saved through him. There are elements of judgment in the ministry of Jesus, but the focus is on favor. And the judgment is actually something that he takes upon himself for our salvation. The judgment of those who reject the Lord comes later on. Now is the time of favor. And the same is actually true of this this chapter. The day of God's vengeance is mentioned in verse 2, but it's almost a a passing comment. The full description of the vengeance, this, this day of vengeance, the vengeance of the anointed conqueror, that's saved for Isaiah 63. And this chapter is actually an invitation to all who trust in the Messiah to rejoice. And that's the key word of our, of our big idea for today. Rejoice. Rejoice in the year of the Lord's favor that is here and is coming. Rejoice in the year of the Lord's favor that is here and is coming. The year of the Lord's favor. You might wonder if we can really talk about the year of the Lord's favor in a year like 2021. We might think that these recent days have been days of God's judgment. But what we find is that for those who are in Christ, the the work that he has accomplished means that every moment of our lives is marked by gracious favor. Whatever is happening in the world or in us, we have reason to rejoice and to give thanks. And until Christ returns, we proclaim a message of grace and favor to all people. No matter what is happening around us, we can see in the present and in the future the Lord's favor. And so we can rejoice. Though you might also wonder, what's the point of rejoicing? What's the point of giving thanks? Is, is, it, is there any reason to look long at the favor of the Lord to us? Why should I put any effort into rejoicing in what the Lord has done in Christ and what he will do in the future. As we head into the Thanksgiving holiday, we could ask, do we really have to pause and go around the table and talk about what we're thankful for? And the answer is, if you want pumpkin pie, 
then yes. <laughs> no, the answer is, of course, it's good. It is good to pause and to rejoice and give thanksgiving. They are good for our souls. We should work hard in the midst of an often discouraging world to rejoice in the favor of the Lord. We should praise God for all of his goodness in Christ. Why? Because worship is transformative. James Smith has a book titled, You Are What You Love. We are what we love. And there's something true about that. And it's also true that, that beholding is becoming, that what we behold and worship is what we become like. And in a similar way, praise and thanksgiving are transformative. If you've ever received an email from Carolyn, you've seen this quote from Elizabeth Elliot at the end of it. It is always possible to be thankful for what is given rather than resentful over what is withheld. One attitude or the other becomes a way of life. Thankfulness or resentment, one attitude or the other becomes a way of life. And Isaiah then is inviting us to make rejoicing and gratitude for the Lord's favor a way of life, a way of life that will change us and that will also, in fact, change the world around us. So therefore, rejoice. And it's not a waste of time to put effort into rejoicing and giving thanks. Rejoice in the year of the Lord's favor that is here and that is coming. Let's look at this chapter in two parts. A vision of the Lord's favor in verses 1 through 9. And then a response of rejoicing and thanksgiving in verses 10 and 11. Uh, and just a note, we're going to spend the majority of our time in verses 1 through 3. We're going to spend the second most amount of time in verses 10 through 11, and we're just going to fly over <laughs> verses 4 through 9 for the sake of time. So further study for you. But in verses 1 through 9, we find a vision of the Lord's favor, a vision of the Lord's favor. At the center of this vision is a person, and this person is speaking in verses 1 through 3. He says that the Spirit of God is upon him because he has anointed him. Now, we've said a number of times that that this final section of the book of Isaiah from chapters 56 through 66 presents the coming Messiah as the anointed conqueror. But what exactly does the word anointed mean? Uh, the act of anointing, usually involving oil in the scriptures, means putting that, that oil on someone or on something. But that's not all that there is, right? Otherwise, you'd be anointing your frying pan every time you put oil into it. But, but you're not. There's more to it, right? The, the oil and the act of anointing something are symbolic. They're symbolic of setting apart someone or something for a special purpose. So in the book of Exodus, the priests in different parts of the tabernacle are anointed, setting them apart as holy and different to be used specifically in the service of the Lord. Samuel anoints Saul and later David in 1 Samuel, identifying them as the Lord's anointed, a chosen, chosen leaders, chosen kings in Israel. And here, the Messiah says that the Lord has anointed him. The Lord has set him apart for a special work. He's, he is a chosen servant of the Lord, and his divinely appointed work is described in the second part of verse 1 all the way through verse 3. His work is to do a number of things, and each of the illustrations are, that are used describe human experiences that we can actually all relate to, to one degree or another. So first, what, what is this work that, that, he's, that, 
that the, the Messiah has been anointed to do. First, he comes to bring good news to the poor. To bring good news to the poor. If you're poor, good news is that you're no longer poor. <laughs> it's, it's finding a winning lottery ticket. It's someone writing you into their will. It's being on this California highway. Did you see this where the, the armored truck started losing money? If you're poor and you're behind that truck, that's good news. Except they said, you better turn yourself in or you're going to get arrested if you stole that money. So maybe it's not good news. But that's what good news is. And Jesus says that the poor are blessed by his coming, not because they will be made materially rich in this life, but because the kingdom of God belongs to the poor in spirit. Remember that from Matthew 5? The good news is that their lack of resources, our lack of resources, and our poverty in this life doesn't exclude us from God's kingdom, like we would be excluded from membership in some country club. Rather, being poor in spirit, being humble, and knowing that our spiritual pockets are empty and that we are morally bankrupt, paves the way for our entrance into God's kingdom. The message that Jesus proclaims in his coming is, in the words of Huey Lewis, that it doesn't take money and it don't take fame. And you don't need a credit card to get into God's kingdom because Christ has come to do all that is necessary to redeem us. That's the power of the gospel. And that is good news that the poor are invited in. Jesus has come to bring good news to the poor. He's also anointed to bind up the brokenhearted. To bind up the brokenhearted. What a beautiful phrase. Some of you here are nurses or medical professionals, and you probably have a, a working knowledge of how to bind up a broken leg or a broken arm. Or, or maybe you know how to, how to dress a wound so that it can properly heal. Those are good skills to have. But who in, among us knows how to bind up a broken heart so that it can heal? I don't know about you, but there's times in life where people tell me what's going on, what's happening, people that I know and that I love, and I can see that they are heartbroken and I have no idea what to do. I don't know how to heal their broken heart. All I know to do is that I can point them to someone who can because Jesus was sent to bind up broken hearts, to heal us from all the brokenness that's caused by our own sin and by those who sin against us. Psalm 34, 18 tells us that the Lord is close. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. When life breaks your heart, Jesus is able to bind it up. Jesus is able to heal all of your diseases. Friends, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not aloof. Jesus is not unconcerned with what breaks your heart. He's a Savior who cares deeply about his dearly loved children. He's come to bind up the brokenhearted. Jesus is anointed to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, and third, to set free the captives. To set free the captives. In recent days, to one degree or another, we've all experienced being quarantined in our home, not being allowed to go out like we're teenagers that have been grounded. <laughs> 
for most, if not all of us, our homes are really not that, not bad places to be trapped, but it's still frustrating. We might have new sympathy, though, for those that are in prison. Even worse, those that are in solitary confinement. We might have new respect for those that have survived as prisoners of war. We who can hardly survive as prisoners of our homes. And we might better understand the joy of being released, of being released from any kind of captivity, the elation of of being set free to do whatever you want. And Christ, the Messiah, has come to set us free, to set us free from the slavery of sin. He's come to set us free from addiction to sin and from the consequences of sin. Anyone who sins, Jesus says, is a slave to sin, and he has come so so that we might so that we might not feel the, the we, might, we might not be imprisoned by sin anymore and that we might find life in him Jesus' divinely appointed work is is described then as to bring good news to the poor to bind up the brokenhearted to set free the captives and finally to to comfort the mourning to comfort the mourning do you see how Isaiah is tapping into things that we all experience, that we all know so well. Jesus has come to heal the deepest longings of our, of our hearts, and he's come to comfort the mourning. The threat and the reality of death, they fill our world. And Jesus comes to comfort those that mourn. Not only does he comfort us, but maybe the way that he does comfort us is that he transforms our mourning into something different. We see there in, in verse 3 that Instead of, instead of ashes, the ashes of mourning, we're given beauty. The beautiful headdress we'll see of a, of a bride. Instead of the weeping of a funeral, we're given the oil of gladness. And instead of gray despair, we're given the bright garment of praise. How can the Messiah do this? How can he comfort us in our grief over death? Well, it would seem to me that the only way that he can transform mourning into beauty and gladness and praise is if, he, is if he can get rid of the death that causes all of this mourning, which is what he's done. Jesus, in dying and rising again, has defeated death so that we can be comforted in our mourning now and so that we can look forward to a day when death is replaced by eternal beauty, gladness, and joy. And this is what the year of the Lord's favor looks like. It's what the Messiah was sent to bring into our world. Jesus was anointed by the Father for this special work. And throughout the Gospels, we see him blessing those who are poor and brokenhearted. He sets free those enslaved by demons and disease. And he even raises the dead, comforting and blessing the mourning. And yet all of his miracles point forward to the great work of redemption that the Father had anointed him to. And so he's not only anointed as this person to bring good news, but Mary anoints the feet of Jesus to prepare him for his burial. Because the great work that the Father had sent him to accomplish was redemption and salvation. And it was only through his sacrificial death on the cross that he could accomplish that. So Jesus, the anointed Messiah filled with the Spirit, was also the suffering servant. And it's by faith in his righteous life and his atoning death that we who are poor can be made rich. We whose hearts are broken by sin can be comforted. We who are imprisoned by evil can be set free. 
And we who mourn our mortality and the mortality of others can be resurrected to new life. If you're not in Christ, could I remind you that the day of God's vengeance is coming? But can I also remind you that today is the year of the Lord's favor? So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus who alone can save you from sin and death and bring you into this year of the Lord's favor for all eternity. The work of the Messiah, Jesus, brings us new life. And Isaiah describes the new life that flows into we who are children of God through faith. Notice the word that in the middle of verse 3. Did you see this? This final blessing, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that, so that, in order that, they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Here's the connection. The Lord has anointed Jesus to do all of the things described so that God's people would be called oaks of righteousness who glorify the Lord. The the work of salvation is to transform God's children into righteous people who glorify him in this world. We are to be oaks of righteousness who stand firm and tall in a world of unrighteousness and injustice. And by doing so, bring glory to God as we reflect his righteous character. Have Have you ever thought of yourself as a oak of righteousness, a tall tree that stands firm and shows forth the beauty of God's goodness and life in this world? Our salvation then is not simply a rescue from sin and death, but it's, it's the giving up of our lives in service to God for his glory. Jesus is our Savior and Lord. And as our Lord, we are called to live lives of righteousness that resound to the praise of his name. Now, in light of all of this, go all the way back to, to verse 1. Because the Messiah says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me for this ministry of redemption and salvation. So in other words, the order seems to be that that the Lord sets the Messiah apart for his work, this, this work that we've just described, this work of salvation. And having set him apart for this monumental work, he then gives him the spirit to accomplish that work. So what God calls Christ to do, he equips him for by the power of the spirit. So therefore we see Jesus in his baptism. And as he comes up out of the water, the spirit descends on him like a dove. And the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And only after that is he tempted in the wilderness. Only after that does he take up this scroll of Isaiah and read from it. At the beginning of his ministry, he is empowered by the spirit to accomplish what God sent him to accomplish. And this pattern of of anointing for a a special work and then the empowering of the Spirit is seen before Christ. I would say it's true of us here and now. That we who are in Christ, we are called to continue to do the work of Jesus in this world. We are to proclaim in word and indeed the good news. We are to bind up the brokenhearted. We are to set free the captive. We are to call people out of mourning and into the joy and the favor of the Lord. We are to be oaks of righteousness for God's glory. 1 John 2, 2 says that all true believers are anointed. And part of that must mean that we are called to do the works of Jesus and even greater works, he says, greater works than Jesus. Maybe our anointing then is akin to the washing of the disciples' feet or 
or to being washed in the blood of Jesus. But however we think about it, it is anoint, it's an anointing that comes on us, not so that we can be kings and conquerors, but so that we can be servants of Christ and servants of others who lay down our lives for the good of others and for the glory of the Father. But if we're going to do that, it's never going to be possible on our own. And so like Jesus, we are not only anointed, but we are given the spirit of the living God. On the day of Pentecost, the spirit comes on every believer in Jesus and fills their mouth with, the me- with messages about the great and glorious deeds of God. And we who trust in Christ are filled with the spirit and sent to proclaim the message that now is the year of the Lord's favor to speak forth this message and to stand as oaks of righteousness in the power of his spirit. What God has called us to, he has equipped us for. Therefore, we don't need to be afraid about proclaiming this message. We don't need to be be afraid because it's a good message. It's It's one of favor. It's hope for the poor. It's healing for the brokenhearted. It's freedom for the captive. It's joy for the mourning. And we also don't need to think that we are incapable of speaking forth this message or even of modeling the kingdom's fullness in how we live because we've been anointed and we've been given God's very spirit, the spirit of Jesus. And he can make us oaks of righteousness for his glory. He's doing it even now for every child of God. So believer in Jesus, this is what you're called to. You're called to a spirit-empowered ministry that proclaims and models the kingdom of God in our world. Don't be duped into thinking that your life is summed up by anything other than the fact that you are part of the spread of God's kingdom on earth until he brings it in its fullness. There's nothing better to be a part of. Well, as I said, we don't have time to go into verses four through nine as much as we might like to, but they confirm the words of the anointed Messiah, Messiah servant, and they continue to, to speak of the results of his work, of the blessing that comes to God's people. So verses four through six speak about the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the reestablishment of the priesthood, priesthood once again. As in chapter 60, the wealth of the nations are flowing into God's city. We could see these verses not only as the the future blessing of the heavenly Zion, but even the reality of the church, the priesthood of all believers, as we are called priests in Christ and invited to offer our lives in worship to the Lord. If verses, if verses four through six focus on the material blessings of the Savior's work, then verses seven through nine speak of the relational blessings. Instead of shame, God's people receive a double portion of his blessing that leads to everlasting joy. In verse 8, God brings recompense to his people, a reward and a restitution grounded in his justice and in his everlasting covenant. And this leads in verse 9 to worldwide praise of God. When we stand as, as oaks of righteousness, the nations are drawn to our righteous God. And when we rest in his covenant love, he takes away all of our shame and gives us a double portion of his goodness. So this, this vision of the Lord's favor that comes to us through Jesus is it's almost overwhelming. It's like drinking from a fire hose. It's hard to take it all in. But for what we can take in, we respond with rejoicing and thanksgiving. 
And remember, this rejoicing and thanksgiving marks and shapes our lives. It has deep effect on us. So it's, it's worth it to press in to rejoice and to give thanks. And so we see in verses 10 through 11, the children of the Lord rejoice and give thanks. Or you could just write rejoicing and giving of thanks, however you want to term it. That's what the, the focus is on in verses 10 through 11. Verse 10 opens with this, this word, I. But who's talking here? It's no longer the anointed servant Messiah who is speaking. Rather, it's everyone who has experienced this favor of the Lord. And what do they say? They say, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul is going to exult in my God. I am overflowing with praise and thanksgiving and joy because of what God has done for me in Christ. What are we giving thanks for? Well, there's, there's two four statements in this passage that help us see what we are rejoicing in when we are rejoicing in God's salvation. And the first is that we're giving thanks and we're rejoicing in new clothes. That's the middle of verse 10. What are we rejoicing and giving thanks in for thanks for new clothes? I mean, who doesn't love new clothes other than a kid on Christmas morning? When we are rejoicing in God's work, we're giving thanks for new clothes. We're giving thanks for the robes of righteousness that we've been given. Clothes have deep meaning in Scripture. We might think of Adam and Eve when their sin is exposed and their nakedness then is exposed, and then God clothes them with the skins of an animal. Blood is shed to cover their shame. We might think of the prodigal son re returning home from spending all of his inheritance. And surely he was more filthy than we can imagine. His clothes were caked in dirt. He smelled like the pigs that he'd been caring for. But the father embraces his child and then calls for the servants to do what? Bring him a new robe. The prodigal had come to be made a servant in his father's house, but he's given the robe of a son, the robe of an heir. We could think of Paul who said that the walk of faith is one where we take off the old self, almost like old clothes. We're renewed in the spirit of our mind and we put on the new self. Or we could even think about the white robes of the saints in the new Jerusalem, robes that have been washed clean in the blood of the lamb. Clothes, they obviously carry a little bit more meaning than we might initially think. And in the message of salvation, they tell us that we were once clothed in filthy rags, but now in Jesus, we are clothed in his righteousness. Isaiah, in fact, here talks about wedding garments, some of the most beautiful garments that we can imagine. You know, you can, you can go to museums and see wedding clothes. <laughs> they hold on to these things. You can, you can see the military uniform of some famous groom or the dress of a bride with a train that flows for yards and yards. They're preserved because... They're beautiful. And God takes we who are naked and filthy in our sin, who are unlovely and those that others would avoid, and he clothes us. He clothes us in his perfect and beautiful righteousness. He takes off our mourning clothes and he gives us beauty for our ashes, anointing us with the oil of gladness, covering us with a garment of praise. He makes us his bride. He makes us a pure bride and then he marries us so that he can love us for all eternity. We don't have those beautiful clothes on our own. 
So he clothes us himself. This Thursday, Thanksgiving, we might give thanks for our clothes or for other material blessings. And as you do that, let's not forget to give thanks for the clothing of salvation purchased by Jesus. We might give thanks for our relationships and for our our loved ones, but let's not neglect to give thanks for the redeeming love of the Lord that has made us children of God and made us the bride of Christ. So we give thanks for new clothes. And secondly, in verse 11, we give thanks for new growth. New growth. Verse 11 speaks of the righteousness and the praise that sprout in the world and in all nations as a result of what the servant has done. This world, plagued with the thorns and the thistles of sin, one day is going to sprout all over with new life. And even now, as God bears fruit in us, we bear witness to the garden that is coming in the new Jerusalem. Remember Isaiah 55, where where God says, God speaks of his ways like rain and snow that water the earth and bring forth flourishing. And then we are are invited to be a part of that. So we give thanks to the Lord for the privilege of being oaks of righteousness for his glory in this world. He's not made us seed that falls on the path and is eaten up or, or seed that is scorched by trials or seed that is choked out by the cares of this world. By, by his grace and by his power alone, he's made us seeds that bear fruit. He's made us oaks of righteousness that can stand forth for his glory. And we give thanks for the, the promise of the, the new creation that is filled with righteousness and, and praise. We know for sure, that the day of God's vengeance is coming. But we also know that because we are in Christ, for us, the year of the Lord's favor will in fact never end. It has started now and it will continue for all eternity. It's only going to get better and better and better for the child of God. And that's something to rejoice in. (laughs) That's something to give thanks for. So, Brothers and sisters, you who are in Christ, rejoice in the year of the Lord's favor that is here and that is coming. Now, usually I would invite us into a moment of silence and a closing prayer. But I wondered if we could do something different. I wonder if you might find someone near you, one person, two people, three people, four people, however many you want. Well, not everyone in one group. Let's do some smaller groups. But to find someone near you and pray a prayer of praise and thanks. A prayer of praise and thanks for new clothes and new growth. A a prayer of, of thanks for the salvation purchased by the anointed Messiah and the blessings that we know now and will know forever. Now, not everyone is going to pray, probably just one person in your group. Uh, And then we'll, we'll just have one person to offer a prayer of thanks, a prayer of praise for what God has done for us in Christ. And then Mark is going to lead us in our closing song of of Thanksgiving. So let this be our closing prayer. Uh, Again, it can just be with the person right next to you. Or if you want to get up, feel free to do that as well. But just one person to lead in a prayer of praise and thanks.